tell you a lot about him, actually. His name is Ted. He's married to Whitney. He went to Georgia Tech University, grew up in a Christian family. Okay? I don't think his parents were in ministry, but I know that his dad was very involved in church ministry. Uh, studied engineering at Georgia Tech University. And uh, why he was there, he was very involved in like a campus sort of Christian club, you know, Young Life or one of these, and, and actually then moved to Chicago soon after that, was part of a very large church there in Chicago. It's called Willow Creek. You ever heard of that? He was part of that church for a while. And then he got a job in California. And he went out to California. That's where he met Whitney, okay? And, and they are, I mean, he is an amazing photographer, He's got some beautiful pictures of their wedding. I mean, I wasn't able to be there, but it's, it's like when you see the pictures, you feel like you've been there. You know what I'm saying? And um, now he's a professional photographer. He's won several awards for his photography. I mean, he's in magazine articles, like number one photographer of, of this and that. I mean, I mean, it's amazing the achievements that, that Ted has achieved. And the truth is, I've never met him. I've never met this guy. I know all this stuff about him, and you know how I know him? Somehow we end up being Facebook friends. And I've never met this guy, he's never met me, and I know all this stuff about him. I know his wife's name, I know he went to college, I know what he does for a living, I, I know all these things, and, and we've never spoken, we've never seen each other, and I don't know what he knows about me, but we are friends. You have a friend like that? You have a Facebook friend or, or some friend that's a long ways off and, and you seem to know all this information about them. But I'm telling you, if Ted and I bumped into each other and, and we were looking at each other face to face, we have no shared experiences. We have nothing really in common. We've never had a conversation. And every day I see another detail of his life. What is wrong with us? That that's how friends operate. You see, here's the truth. Today I'm going to talk a lot about knowing Christ, about knowing God. And I find that a lot of people think that I'm talking about a relationship similar to what I have with Ted and Whitney. You know, you know some facts about them. You know maybe some details of their life. You know some events that might have occurred you know that maybe this happened in his past and, and you see the things that he's done, but the truth is, I don't know him at all. A lot of us, when, when we hear people talk about knowing Christ, that's how we're thinking. We think that, that it means that you know about Christ. Or you know about things that he did at one time. You know about things that maybe he'll do in the future. But I want to call us, really, for the next two, three months to knowing Christ, to knowing God, to having a relationship with the Lord. Now, you might think that I'm a little bit strange. You might think I'm a little bit odd that I'm speaking about God in these terms. But this is how the Bible speaks of God. The Bible speaks of knowing God and of, of that it is possible to speak to Him as a man speaks to his friend face to face. It speaks in very relational terms that we can have this kind of a relationship with the God of the universe. We want to see that in God's Word. 
We want to see that. And what I want us to see as we, as we start into this study today, we're going to be in the book of Philippians. You might want to find it, okay? It's in your New Testament. Uh, turn to the middle and start turning to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So in my Bible, it's on page 1,775. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to now talk about the importance of us knowing Christ. And as much as I can, I, I want us to understand that God desires a real relationship with you. Not a religion. Not, a, not an idea of knowing about Him. But truly knowing Jesus Christ. And having that kind of connection with the God of the universe. In just a minute, I'm going to read Philippians 3, verses 1-11. through 11, But let's pray first and ask God to speak to our hearts. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you now. We want to hear your word. Lord, we're going to open up this book. We're going to read each of the verses. We're going to understand the words. And all of this means nothing if you don't speak to our hearts. So God, now it's with a humble heart that we come to you. And we're asking you to show us the truth. To convince us of you. And to draw us to you. Because we will find you when we seek you with all of our heart. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 1, starts out with this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Verse 2, a warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You'll understand what that means in just a minute. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The author here is named Paul. And he writes on and says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Yeah, you read that right. This guy was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. Literally, it is the word dung. I count them as trash, rubbish, ESV says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse number 10. Probably the key verse 
of the next two months of our time together. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So as I look at the last two chapters of Philippians, chapters 3 and chapter 4, this was a letter that Paul wrote. He's in prison. He writes it to a church in a town called Philippi. That's where the word Philippians comes from. And now he's, he's given them a strong call to have relationship with Christ. And the thing that strikes me about the remainder of this book is Paul is going to call us to something that is just about unheard of for human beings. And I'm not talking about knowing Christ. He's now going to really poke us in a very sore spot. He's going to poke us where it hurts. And the reason he's going to poke us here is the lack of this thing that I want to talk about for a minute is a very clear indication that possibly you aren't walking in a way that is in line with knowing Christ. Let me simplify that statement. You want to know if you know Christ. Do I know Christ? Am I walking with Him in, a, in the relationship that He intends? You want to know if that's true? I'll give you a fruit. I'll tell you an indication that you are. An indication that you are walking in a manner that aligns with what it means to know Christ is the presence of contentment. Contentment. Ouch. Not right after Christmas. Now, we're not going to deal with that, are we? Contentment. See, I... The author now, Paul, is going to continually poke us there. Are you content? Are you content? Are you content? Because it is contentment. And what contentment is, it's a, it is a real, not a fake, it is a real satisfaction with what God has provided in your life. That's what it is. And it is an indication that you are walking in the manner that aligns with knowing Christ. So let's talk about contentment. Because the reality is we want and want and want and want. Do we not? There's so many things that we want. I mean, think about it. We as a people, I mean, just looking out here at the room, at us, we travel more, we consume more, we have more, we spend more than probably any other group of people that we could ever come up with. But yet, what do we hear about over and over and over? And what do we see is true in our lives? I made a whole host of things. We struggle with envy and jealousy and rivalry and greed. We're steeped in debt, personal, auto, home debt. We're sick, we're overweight. Our homes are huge, but they're empty of visitors. Our children have unimaginable opportunities, but few leave the nest. Our paychecks are growing, but not as fast as our spending. Folks, America 
Martinsburg, Berkeley County, our homes, my home. We struggle with contentment, don't we? We struggle with it. And Paul is sitting in prison when he's writing this. And he says, I'm writing that you would rejoice. Now, what does the Bible say about contentment? Let me put a verse up on the screen. What does the Bible say about contentment? It says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Hmm. Now, think of what that says. Godliness, so this is being like the Lord. And add in some contentment, and that's great gain. Now, we don't usually live it that way, okay? In reality, we get this all sort of messed up in our brain, okay? And I want to challenge you to know something, but not know something else, all right? So put this up on the screen. I want you to know this, not that, okay? Know this, not that. I want us to know that godliness with contentment is great gain. But don't know this, because here's sort of the, the version that most of us live. Most of us live this version. Godliness with great gain, and then I'll be content. Let that sink in for a minute. Is that not what we struggle with? Is that not how we truly walk if we aren't careful? Paul says that to know Christ and to be, to be like him and to be content with that brings great gain. That's what the Spirit of God says. But our flesh, our Christianized flesh now, okay, Me, now that I've got the Spirit of God in me because I've realized that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior and I turn to the only Savior that there is, Jesus Christ, and I look to the cross where He died for my sins and I receive that as mine. I receive His forgiveness. Now I'm a believer. But listen, that doesn't eliminate the struggle that we have. And where we go is, we think, sort of the Christianized version is, Okay, now that I'm in Jesus, if I just have enough, then I'll find contentment. Now, I I told you it was going to hurt a little, okay? We're going to be poked here a little bit. And the reason is out of love. The reason is out of love. Because God knows that we are surrounded by idols. We are surrounded by... By idols all around us. Surrounded. And so now what the Lord desires for us, what He's made us for, is to have relationship with Him. But where we go, if we, if we allow our flesh to take over, is we trip into idolatry. And so then we start adding things, hoping that if we take those things and some godliness, well then we'll finally be satisfied. And we won't. We won't. You know, it's funny how we are as people. We have so much. But we live in a way it's if we have nothing. Desire, desire, desire. Now, let me, let me say this as well, because this is, this, I know what you're all thinking. Okay, I know what you're thinking. 
You think this is, this is where he's going today. This is what Lowell's going to say. So don't want stuff. Don't adore things. So that's what you're going to say, Lowell, right? You're going to say that it's wrong for me to desire so much. Stop wanting. Stop wanting. That's what you think. That's where you think I'm headed today. And I can just say that. Stop wanting. Okay, everybody leave. You know what would happen? Nothing. Nothing. Because here's another truth. We are powerless. We are powerless to change ourselves on our own. The problem isn't that we want too much. It's quite honestly that we're too easily satisfied. It's not that you want too much. It's we're we're too easily satisfied. Let me put a quote up here from a guy named C.S. Lewis. He says it better than me. Here's what he says. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. C.S. Lewis is from England. Vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In our passage that we're going to walk through here, Paul says his desire is to know Christ. This is our call. And quite honestly, if we, if we know that the call is to know Christ, to settle for anything else, to settle for all the riches in the world, is honestly cruel. It is cruel to do that to ourselves. It is cruel to do that to those that follow behind us. If, if it's true that we are made for relationship with Christ, if it's true that we're called to know Him, if that is the greatest ambition in our life, it is cruel to offer anything else to anybody else. It is only loving to chase after Jesus. So, what, so I don't want to tell you to stop wanting. Mm-mm. I want us to want Christ more. And then be content with what He brings our way. Want Christ most, so then we can be content with what he brings our way. Want Christ more than any other, and then we be content with whatever he brings our way. Now the author, Paul, back to Philippians chapter 3, the author is going to make an interesting argument for contentment. And um, what he's going to do, let me just, let me just lay it out for you and then, and then you can follow it along. What he's going to do is he's going to choose, in his world at that moment, the very best test case he can come up with and ask, is this person content? You follow what I'm saying? He's going to, he's going to, he's going to put up a model, and this model is going to be the one who should be content. If anyone should be content, it should be this model of a person that he's going to lay out for us. And that model is himself, Paul. 
Notice what it says. He says that we should rejoice. Verse number two, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate their flesh in the name of their religion. They're mutilating their flesh. For we are the circumcision. That's what these, these mutilators are doing. They're circumcising themselves in some kind of an act for God. He says, no, 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 no. We worship the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. So here's what he's saying. He says, I want to show you. I want to paint a picture for you of somebody who if anybody should be content with with the flesh and with anything but Christ, they should. It, It should work. But it won't. What we're going to see is the secret to discontentment. And what Paul is going to show us is the secret to discontentment. This is the opposite of contentment. The secret to discontentment is what I think we can call religious contentment. Here's what that is. That's having a religion, having, a, having a, a, the semblance of a relationship with God, having a religion, and just being settled with that. You do that. You bring just a religion into your life. Just know about God and know about His Word and, and kind of hang around His people. Maybe be in a Christian family. Maybe, you know, be at a Christian church. You have a little bit of that and know Christ and don't know Him, I mean to say. And that is a recipe for discontentment. Look at Paul now. Let's see what he says. He's going to walk through his sort of religious resume, okay? And you have to understand that when Paul wrote this, he is going to lay out the best case scenario for contentment. He's coming up with the very best case he can, he can, he can just imagine for somebody that should be content. Now, it's going to seem odd to you Because we're from a different culture. We're from a different time period. But you have to recognize that in this day, he's going to lay out best case scenario. See what it says. First of all, he's got three inherited traits. Three inherited traits. Follow with me in verse number five. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now what this means, it really doesn't mean anything to the eight-day-year-old child, but when Paul was eight days old, he was brought into the community, into into the religious leaders, and they circumcised him as an eight-day-old child. And literally, the Greek says he is an eight-dayer. Paul says, I am an eight, I am circumcised as an eight-dayer. It is a it is a it's a like a, a badge of honor. He isn't somebody who fell into this Judaism sometime late in life. Since he was born, he was there around this stuff, around his religion, circumcised on the eighth day. It meant nothing to him. He's eight days old, okay? He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't remember it. It means nothing to him. This is an inherited trait. We go on. There's others. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. So he is a Jewish man. He is a descendant of Abraham. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, God gave his word, the Old Testament. He he asked the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, to be the, the caretakers of his word. And so God's desire was that through those people, all the world would be reached. But Paul says, I'm from this sort of race 
that was looked at favorably by God. So now he has this religious ritual that's been there all of his life. Check. He's from the right race. Jewish. Check. And it goes beyond that. Then he says, not only is he of the tribe of of the people of Israel, he's also of the tribe of Benjamin. Now I know that doesn't mean anything to us today. It didn't mean a whole lot to the mass of people then. Because here's the truth. Most of the people, when Paul wrote this, most of the Jewish people had no idea what tribe they were from. That had been lost in the, in the Jewish people. But Paul knew he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, a couple things. One, Saul, first king of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin. Good, that's good. When the, when the Israel split and had a civil war, ten tribes went north, two tribes went south. Who were they went south? Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin's a good tribe. Jerusalem sits in the land that Benjamin occupied. Benjamin was a very good tribe. So Paul is not only does he have this religious ritual in his background, not only is he of the right race, but even within that race, he's the highest rank of all. Now, did Paul do anything to... to earn that? Did he do anything to, for that to be his? No. But in the mindset of that day, this made Paul sort of the upper crust. Now let me bring that into our lives. Some of you have heard me share my testimony before. I was, I was raised in a very religious family. We were at church every single week. Every week. And it's funny, you know where our family sat? Right there. Right where my family does. It's kind of weird how that happens. We sat right there in that little church in Kaiser, West Virginia, every single week. And when I was a teenager, I started to struggle with this truth. What's going to happen to me after I die? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to me after I die? I'm 14, 15 years old. And I would go to my parents and I would ask them about this. And my own parents would say to me, Mickey, that's what they called me, Mickey, you're fine. You were born in a Christian family. Now, you know, I was no Einstein, all right? I mean, you know, I'm not like making straight A's, anything like that. But I could scratch my head and I could be like, that doesn't make any sense doesn't make any sense. I was born in a Christian family. I know what I'll do. I'll ask the pastor. So I went to the pastor. The pastor of the church who stood up front and opened up the Bible and read to us every single week. And I asked him, how can I know what will happen to me after I die? And he called me Lowell. A little Lowell. My dad was big Lowell. A little Lowell. What you're asking is a common question that many of us wrestle with in life thinking, oh, this looks good. Okay, I got an answer that's going to help me. Over the years, many have struggled over this question. Adjust his robe, light a candle or something, move some you know, smoke around a little bit. He says, you don't need to worry. After all, you were born into a Christian family. Are you kidding me? 
That's the best you got. The best you have is the same lame answer my parents gave me last week. I was born into a Christian family. Well, God did work. And I'll save the rest of the details right now. And I came to realize that is not, that is not how we know. You don't know Christ because your parents did. It's funny. We are called children of God, sons of God, if you're in Jesus. I can't find anywhere where a grandchild of God ever exists. There's no such thing as a grandchild of God. There's only sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. There is no grandchild of God. If that's what you're relying on, hmm, you're probably really discontent, huh? If that's what you're relying on. Doesn't work. Never has. You know why? God doesn't want religion. He wants you and me to know him. So back to Paul. So he laid out these things he inherited. So now let's take it to another level, okay? So let's go from things that he has inherited. You know, he was born with these things. It was done to him. He didn't, he didn't do anything to have it. Let's go to some achievements now, shall we? Let's go to some things that Paul did. And maybe these things will, will have some value. Maybe these will bring him contentment. Maybe these things, when he wakes up at 3.24 in the morning and he wonders, God, are you real? Lord, are you there? I hear people talk about God, but I don't feel you. Are you even real? Are you alive? Do you exist? You see, there are answers to those questions, but they're found in relationship with God, not in religion. We saw what he inherited. Let's check out of his achievements. Okay? Go back to the passage. He says he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, what's that mean? What that means is that Paul was serious about living out the tradition of Judaism. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's like saying, you know, he's a man among men. What does it mean that he's a man among men? It means he can split wood, he can shoot a gun, and hold his breath a long time underneath the water. Okay? That's what it means, right? Kind of. Yeah, Glenn says yes. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. So what this means is he followed the tradition. Now, we're talking about his achievement. So there were a set of religious rules... Okay, 613 laws that they had put together, and he's doing his best to live them. So he does all the things he's supposed to do. He carries a Bible to church. He tells the truth. He's a man of integrity. He helps old ladies across the street. He buys groceries for the poor people. Okay, you know, he stays under the speed limit. He does all those things, and he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that's not all he did. It's more. It's more. He follows the tradition. And then it says, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, here's what that means. That is a badge of honor in Paul's day. Pharisee has grown to be a very negative thing to us. Not to Paul. There are only about 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day. That's all there were. In this town, in this, this community where there be hundreds of thousands of people, about 6,000 of them were Pharisees. They were the elite. They were the prestige. They were like our professional athletes. 
Okay? Now, I know that seems weird to you, but it's a whole different time, a whole different land, a whole different place, a whole different culture. And in this culture, if a Pharisee walked in the room, you'd love to run up and get his autograph, but you're not worthy to talk to him anyway. So you kind of stay back in the shadows. Oh, look who it is. It's Paul. You think he'd sign my scroll? You know? He's a Pharisee. It's a big deal. Pharisee means the separated ones. The separated ones is what it means. So what this means is he was serious. Okay? He had all that stuff that he just inherited, but now we're talking about his achievements. He followed the tradition, and he was serious about this. It didn't end there. As to zeal, so how much did he really believe that? How much did he really believe this stuff? As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You know what this means? He was so sincere about his beliefs. He, was, he believed what he said he believed so sincerely that he was willing to take your life over it. And he did. He believed this stuff so sincerely that he murdered for it. That's what that means. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was seriously sincere about following this tradition. One more thing. He says, and under the law, as to righteousness that is, under the law, blameless. Blameless. So he, he's, he's seriously now looking at his life and saying, and I followed it all. This guy in Paul's day is the elite. He's the elite. I ask you, who'd be the elite today? Who would it be? Would it be the famous people? You know, the, the Hollywood types? The movie stars? Is that it? Is that the elite? Maybe it's the athletes. You know, the, the professional soccer player or a baseball player or a football player or a basketball Kobe Bryant. Maybe that's it. Is, that's the elite, maybe. Is it the really intelligent people? You know, the, the people that have excelled in academics, the, the college professor, or, or in their world, they've excelled, you know, the engineers and the doctors and the lawyers. Is, is this the elite? In Paul's day, it was him. And what he has to say is, all that is dung. It is garbage. It is worthless. It didn't satisfy. It did not bring me contentment. It didn't work. You see, a perfect recipe to be discontent is to be content with your religion. Think you've got a religion. Think you know the rules. Think you know the policies. Think you have the standards. Follow them. And that's it. Draw the line there. And you're going to say, just like Paul, read with me. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, he says, 
I count everything as loss. Now, I stopped there for a reason. Because here's what I think a lot of us think that Christianity is calling us to, a relationship with Christ. Here's what we think. We think what it's saying is, okay, there's all these things that the world has to offer. Okay, behind me, you can see them. They're streaming behind me. Whatever, whatever track you want it to be on, you know, we already listed them out. You know, money, fame, athletics, scholar, whatever you want to pick. They're all behind me. And we think that what Paul might be saying is, say, I don't want that stuff. No, I don't like it. I'm not going to have it. That's right, I just, I just won't do it. Just with all my might, I, I, just won't, I just won't look back there. I just won't want it. In your heart, you do. You see, a lot of us stop at loss. We stop at loss. I count it all as a loss. But that's not where Paul stopped. He didn't stop there. Is your Christianity just a matter of what you don't have or what you don't do? Is it just a matter of the things that you've said no to? Is it just a matter of the things that you avoid? That with all your power you don't do, or at least not let anybody know that you do? Is that what your walk with Christ is? Well, no wonder you're discontent. No wonder there's no joy. No wonder you're like, man, I'm going to walk away from this stuff. If that's all there was, too, I'd turn around and pursue, just like you. We'd, we'd go in droves after it, if that's all there was. But that's not what God is calling us to. We have to keep reading. We have to keep reading. Which gets to really the next point, but here's what it says. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And there's a hint. Indeed, I count everything loss... Not because it stinks, not because it's bad, not because it's worse, not because it's famous, not because it's fast, not because you can spend a lot of money. No, I count it all as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's not that all these things are so bad. It's that Christ is so good. He's so good that I have him now. I have him now that I'm in Christ. And he is so good, which puts all those things in their proper perspective. If you're fast, be fast. If you're good with money, earn it and, you know, give it away or whatever. That's fine. If you're smart, be smart. If you're a good lawyer, a doctor, be good at that. But that stuff's nothing compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. Here's what Paul's saying. He's calling us now to discontentment. I am call, I'm inviting you to discontentment. I want you to be discontent. I want you to be discontent. I want you to be discontent in your relationship with the Lord. Have a Godward discontentment. I can't get enough. I can't get enough of God, of Christ. I can't get enough of Him. That's what Paul means when he says, I want to know Christ. I can't get enough of Him. That's where you'll find contentment. 
you'll find worldly contentment. You'll find contentment in this world when you are finally Godward discontent. When you say, I can't have enough of Jesus Christ. Now, I know what some people are thinking. I know. The reason why I know is because I've been in that seat. I know some people are thinking, you're weird, Lowell. You're weird. This can't be. I can't see God. I can't pat him on the back. I can't see him when I'm walking down the street. You're a weirdo. I know that's what you think. And that's why I say to you, taste and see that the Lord is good. I'm reminded of one of my children who insisted they hated lasagna. I hate lasagna. No, I hate lasagna. And there was one of these picky eaters. You know the type, right? Most of us don't have that problem. But, but this particular child did. Very, very picky eater. Okay? And, you know, I mean, we tried everything. I don't want to go through what, I, what we tried because you might think less of me. But we tried a lot of stuff, okay? And one day, I think it involved a side headlock and a fork, all right? I guess you wouldn't want to be in my house. I don't know. But finally, I pried open their mouth and jammed the lasagna in their mouth. Okay? Wouldn't want to see this video. Before cell phones. And the kid stops. Says, huh, tastes like pizza. (laughs) See, so many of us, you don't see me as a real person. I know that. I've been there. Okay, I understand that. It's not true. I'm very, very real. But you don't see me as a real person. And so I talk about knowing Christ and knowing God and having a real relationship with Him. That when I get discouraged, I can cry with Him. And when I get happy and there's a good time, honestly, I can laugh with the Lord. Did it at a funeral this week. And the Bible speaks of speaking to God as a man speaks to a friend. And Jesus himself said, I could call you servants. I could call you my slave. But I call you my friend. You see, you don't see me as real. But I am. And in your dismissal of my realness, you then erase the truth that God desires to have this kind of relationship with you. But what I want you to see is not because Lowell said it, because you don't see me as real anyway, but because of what the Lord said in His Word. For His sake... I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may may gain Christ in being found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him. Let me say this. That word know... It's, it's a Greek word. And when in, in the passages of the Bible that describe the relationship 
of a husband and wife. The physical, intimate, sexual relationship of a husband and wife. When the translators wanted to choose a word, they wanted to choose a word that represents the intimacy, the closeness, the realness of that moment. Do you know what word they used? You know what word God used? And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. See, this isn't some kind of like a, you know, idea of something that we do on Sunday mornings. We sing a song and we listen to a speech and we go home. God desires real, close relationship with you. Now, if you don't have it, what do you do? I've thought about you all week. I've thought about you all week. You don't have it. What do you do? I got two things for you, all right? They're not real deep. If you were hoping for something really simple and, and deep, I, I, don't, I don't really have that for you. Number one, though, is this. You say, I don't really have this kind of relationship with the Lord. Okay, step number one. You just need to be honest with yourself and be honest with God. You just need to be honest. You need to pour your heart out to God in prayer and honestly say to God, I know I don't have this kind of relationship with you. But this morning, on January 3rd, at a little bit before noon, I want it. I want this relationship with you. I admit I don't have it. I don't know why, but I don't have it. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. That's what you need to do. Number one, just be honest. And I would encourage you to take that honesty to another level. Now it's getting harder. Take that honesty to this level. You go to somebody else. In this room, maybe. In your family, maybe. In your life, definitely. And you say to them, I don't have what he was talking about. But I want it. Share that with them and ask them to pray for you. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is you seek the Savior. Seek Him. Seek Him. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. You seek Him. Say, what does that look like? It looks like a lot of the things that you already know to do. Okay? Go to God in in prayer. Go to God in the Word. But the point is you're seeking Christ. Honestly admit to Him and to you the truth and seek the Savior. Now, why do I call Him a Savior? Why do I call Jesus the Savior? Because this is what God saved us for. He saved us for the kind of relationship that we've been trying to express today. That's what He saved you for. Turn to Him for salvation. Seek Him for relationship. Now next week we'll come together again on Sunday morning. We're going to look at verses 10 and 11 exclusively. What does it mean to know Christ? To share in His sufferings? To... to, to pursue Him in this way. That's our topic for next week. But today, 
honesty, seeking him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I do uh, thank you for the reality of you. Lord, I pray that... that...